All right, let's kick this thing off. So we got we got the tech figured out, so let's kick this thing off. So this is, like Trevor said, the Zen and the Art of Manufacturing podcast, and we're simulcasting on Clubhouse with your entrepreneurs group, correct? Yeah, so this is brought to you by the Entrepreneurs and Leaders group on Clubhouse. Great. And essentially what, what we're doing is we're going to talk about Trevor's journey uh, of really throughout his career, but I, I want to focus on manufacturing. And you created a manufacturing company from scratch, right? There's not a lot of people that do that, period. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you just um, want to dive into it? Yeah, I do. Well, let me t- let's do a little intro. So Zen the Art of Manufacturing uh, podcast that focuses on helping manufacturers create column and improve flow in their manufacturing environment. And today we have with us Trevor, owner of Buddy Brands, manufacturing company, e-commerce company, and many other things. So yeah, I do want to just jump into it after this. Sweet. So yeah, hey, thanks for having me on here, Brian. Appreciate it. Obviously, we go back quite a ways and we're good friends and uh, I'm happy to join you on this and multiple platforms, apparently. Um, So my story starts off about uh, 10 years ago, in fact, 10 years ago in August. Um, on a routine visit to the vet, I was really surprised to discover that my big dog, Buddy, was not destined to live very long. And uh, by that, I mean, uh, I was surprised to discover that even though he was a Labradoodle, that he was a bigger dog, he was only supposed to live 10 years. And this was rather surprising to me because I was really surprised uh, to discover it from the fact that uh, my, my dog growing up was a poodle and she lived to be 15, 16 years old. And so, you know, I, I looked at the veterinarian and I said, what do you mean he's only going to live to 10 or he's only supposed to live to 10? And he said, well, big dogs like this just don't live that long. And so upon doing some further research, I found out that they don't live that long because of painful joint problems. Now, at the time I was discovering all this, I was working in the mattress industry. So I knew firsthand how, uh, you know, the good support system and a, a tactile pressure mat, pressure free support could really help people. And I'd seen firsthand how it helped people with back problems and hip problems and had made a big difference in their lives. And so I saw an opportunity to uh, create a business and do something proactive, not just for Buddy, but for all the dogs out there that were destined to be euthanized because of painful joint problems. And I decided to create Buddy Rest. So with Buddy Rest, we took the same science that was prevalent in the mattress industry and we crossed it over into pets. And that's how we got our first start. So the... How'd you really get to start though? So like, I, that's the genesis of the idea, right? Which is killer. Uh, and I think it, it, it's fantastic that it was inspired by Buddy. And um, my dog has two of these beds too. So they're, they're fantastic. But like, how do you, how do you take that idea and then turn it into, I mean, it's like physical things. Like what's the first thing that you go out and, and do? Yeah. So, you know, first thing I did was a lot of research. I talked to some veterinarians about it. Um, I, I, was, I did a lot of research online and, you know, I decided that uh, there was really nothing out there that was what I would consider to be supportive or, uh, you know, a quality dog bed. You know, at the time, 10 years ago, and, and, and most dog beds now are primarily, you know, uh, disposable throwaway objects. So you buy it, you wash it a couple of times, it lasts for six months, and then you throw it away and then you re- repeat the cycle. And I was just thinking, okay, well, on a quest to create a better support system, why not create the best dog bed there is? And so um, I started looking at incorporating little features into it, like using a special fabric that's antimicrobial. It doesn't need to be washed near as often. Um, using Kevlar thread that makes the seam stronger uh, so it doesn't, doesn't fall apart in the washing machine. You know, using number eight size zippers instead of number four size zippers because they last longer. So really, really focusing on how do we create the best product there is. Uh, in every single way. And so, 
you know, it really started with us just creating a prototype. We went and had a piece of foam cut down and uh, used a bandsaw to cut a piece of foam to spec. And then we um, hired an upholstery company in town and they made us a cover. And I, I hired a web developer uh, from overseas on some shady website. And we created uh, we created our company and we called it Buddy Rest. And, you know, the first day that we, we did that, we were in uh, we took it to a trade show. Not, not a trade show, it was a consumer show called Wolfstock in Wichita, where we're from, Wichita, Kansas. And uh, it, was a, it was a disaster. We had, to, we had this ba- big banner with our website behind us, um, and we had our, our, we had our dog bed. And the website wasn't working because our, our shady developer didn't come through and didn't build the website like he was supposed to. And then, um, you know, people were constantly asking, how much does this cost and where can I buy this? And, and we didn't have any to sell. Um, so it was, it was a bit of a disaster. But what we did get out of that trade show is we got some validation. We got, we got the fact that people were interested in this product. People, dog people got it. And they wanted something better for the quality of the life of their animal. And so we, uh, we, took, we took away some ver- validation from there. And we decided to... Uh, to go to work and we built uh we built our prototype we finally got our website going and i think two or three weeks later we got our first sale on that website and then a second sale then a third sale and then we kind of bootstrapped it from there when you got those first orders were you still like were you fulfilling them the same way like the people that cut the foam for you and you know the 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 person that made the cover was that the same thing or did you like hire people at that point or what what happened yeah so uh we hired a couple of upholstery stores that, you know, that's kind of where we go from there is that we hired one and we started selling and, you know, they couldn't keep up and it was expensive. And so we, we found another upholstery, another upholstery company and uh, they have same issue, right? They couldn't keep up. It was expensive. So then uh, after about a year or two of doing this, we thought, you know what, this is, this is the wrong approach. This is easy. All we need to do is get a sewing machine we get somebody to cut, we get somebody to sew, and we get somebody to put it all together and ship it out. Manufacturing is not hard. We, we got this. Uh, and so that's what we, we set out to do. And that's how we started becoming a manufacturer is we bought a sewing machine um, and we found a person that could sew and we found a person that could cut and uh, we, we started doing it. What we quickly realized was manufacturing was not that easy. And uh, although it seemed on the surface to be a good plan, it quickly went off the rails. Uh, so from there, uh, you know, uh, we, we did not, we did not account for, uh, you know, um, uh, bottleneck issues. We did not account for waste, uh, uh, of material. We were wasting material, time, money everywhere. Uh, and it just was one of those things. It was just a, a slog. Now I'm delighted to say that, you know, eight years later, we finally figured out, and I say we're pretty damn good at what we do, but, uh, we, we really can't, uh, uh, we really can't take credit for that right off the bat. It was a it was a lot of painful process, a lot of learning, and a lot of a lot of struggles, and a lot of uh, a lot of iteration, a lot of trying to figure out how to do things the right way. I always had this picture in my head of like you sitting on the floor with a sewing machine or like a, a Jeff Bezos style desk with a, a door on a couple sawhorses, like sewing uh, covers for dog beds. So I guess that wasn't happening. Yeah, that's not quite uh, not quite how that happened, but it wasn't far off. I was the guy on the phone in the background selling the things. So did did most of your sales come online? Like, was it almost always direct to consumer, like digital, or did you keep doing 
Yeah, that's a great question. So in the beginning, you know, the first sales did come online, but then we decided, okay, uh, we want to be in pet stores across the United States. You know, we, we did our first trade show, which was uh, called, a show called Global Pet Expo in Orlando. It's the biggest trade show in the world for pets. And we were like the bells of the ball. Everybody was all over us. They thought we had something really cool. And, uh, you know, the, within the first 10 minutes of the show, we had people from Target and VPs from uh, Petco and everybody was all over us. And so we thought, hey, this is this is really happening here. And we were convinced that a brick and mortar strategy was the right strategy for us. So we decided that, you know, it was going to be uh, a little bit of a challenge to sell our products in the store because they were more expensive than what people were used to. But we had looked at the challenge that dog food manufacturers had faced 10 years earlier. And we had decided that, yeah, you know what, even though, uh, you know, even though they were more expensive and there was a large educational component that comes with it, we thought that we were in the right place at the right time. Uh, we quickly realized that was a big mistake. So even though we got into about six, 700 stores, we were getting purchases and we could sell the store owner, but we weren't pulling it through the store, which means we weren't selling through the store. So we weren't getting the reorders. We were getting orders, but not reorders, which is a red flag. And the reason we weren't getting reorders is because uh, the part-time employee that was there you know, in the summer uh, wasn't able to articulate and educate the customer into the into the product and understand the value of the product. And so after about two or three years of a lot of pain, a lot of struggle, we, de- we decided to basically take our business mostly online and switch to a D to C direct to consumer strategy. And that's kind of where we've been since. Now, if you snap forward post 2020, uh, being in e-commerce and being in the pet space, uh, it, it obviously proved to, uh, to be the right move at the right time. Yeah, that's the truth. I can't tell you how many people I've run into who have COVID dogs. Like literally, yes. this is my COVID dog. <laughs> it is really a thing. Yeah. And that is not a rapid zombie dog going around attacking people, giving them COVID. <laughs> that is a uh, that is the, 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 the a nice turn of endearment for people who adopted dogs while they were stuck at home. Yeah, and pet ownership is through the roof, or uh, or what us in the pet industry would say, pet parenting is up through the roof. Um, you know, you, it, it was a, a $50 billion industry when I started in this year, it is a $100 billion industry. They just turned with the, just, just hit that milestone. So it's pretty crazy. And, you know, being in e-commerce with everything being accelerated is definitely a good place to be right now. Like I said. So did you just like straight up abandon the, the brick and mortar, you know, go into pet stores or was that kind of like a slow phase out or how did that go? Yeah, it was. We just stopped putting any energy into it. You know, as anyone, any manufacturers out there knows, dealing with manufacturer sales reps, whether they're inside or outside, is a challenge yeah. and problematic. So we stopped making. We stopped with our our outside efforts and kind of just uh, let things kind of slowly wind down. Now that being said, we do sell some of our products still in brick and mortar retailers. It's just not the dog beds. So. Snap forward today through being opportunistic. Uh, we have built or bought our way into a multitude of different brands and different segments. So, uh, you know, after a couple of years, we found ourselves with kind of a nice business, but it was a pretty small niche still, right? Um, they were, they were uh, expensive beds and they were mostly, you know, looked at as something that could help older dogs with pain. Uh, so we decided, okay, well, how can we achieve more market share? And it wasn't necessarily... Um, uh, trying to go at it with one brand, it was it was going at it with multiple brands. You know, we have a multiple brand approach uh, that's easy to understand. It's because not all dog people are the same. 
You know, the one dog person that likes to push their dog in, the, in their stroller down the street is not the same one that has a, a military working dog that they take to work with them at the police force. You know, it's just it, it, not all dog people are the same. And in this day and age, it's incredibly important that your brand and your messaging resonates directly with the, you know, with the consumer. You know, as a brand, our job really these days is to have, is to help tell the story of the consumer through your brand. So, you know, that's something that we oftentimes ask ourselves is how can our product represent the customer and how can the customer tell their story and journey of who they are through our brand? It's obviously really easy to um, tell through, you know, when it comes to clothing, uh, you know, you know, I like Nike shoes, right? I have lots of Nike shoes. That helps tell, like, that helps express who I am through their brand. It's a little bit more difficult when you're talking about, uh, you know, sensors in manufacturing facilities or, um, you know, dog beds or dog leashes. But you're, you are still telling their story through the brand. You need to figure out how do you, how you can resonate with them. The easiest way to do that is, is by creating a, uh, a, a, a multi, multi-prong approach online and really speaking to those customers and pulling at their heartstrings, finding out what, you know, what moves them, you know, where do they spend their money, what's their problems, and figuring out how to solve them going from there. So what kind of, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we could go with this conversation because you're, you know, you started as a manufacturing company, you bought a bunch of brands over time, and now you're kind of a e-commerce powerhouse, I would say, in the pet industry because of all the different brands that you own and different things that you that you do. Um we could talk about, you know, like how did that whole thing evolve? Because you're one of the best, you know, e-commerce direct to consumer marketers that I know, right? You, you, you must not know a whole lot of people now. That's, that's, that's very nice. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, Brian. I <laughs> uh, really appreciate that. So, you know, um, but was that, I mean, did the, did the brick and mortar just like, you're like, I, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going direct to consumer and I'm going all in on digital or like what kind of mistakes did you make along the way? Like. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, the, the direct consumer uh, was the logical thing to do at the time. You know, I'll tell you one story real quick. And what year you was know, that? We, Sorry. Um, you know, 2000, 2013. To, and let's just say in 2013, we were sitting in our small, tiny little office. And um, we get a knock at the door. And I open the door and there's a retailer from Kansas City. Now, note that we are not in Kansas City. Um, we are in Wichita, which is about a two and a half hour drive. And he was uh, pissed off. He was fuming. And he had a truckload of dog beds in his truck. And what he did, he saw that we were running a sale on our website. He got so upset by that. Rather than, call, rather than contact us or reach out or find out that, you know, we were running, you know, why are we running a sale or when we're running a sale or whether we have map pricing or any of that. He's got pissed off, loaded up all of our beds, came down to came down to Wichita and demanded a refund. So that was a pretty interesting scenario. It's the only time that's ever happened. And it was pretty early on. Uh, we ended up giving we did give him a refund, you know, but the bottom line is, is that there, there, we were really early on and we made a mistake in that particular uh you know, process. What what that retailer didn't know um, at the time was is that we had to sell online because we were selling to survive. Like literally, if we weren't selling product online at the time, we weren't going to be able to, to to continue on on Monday. We were selling stuff on Friday to keep the business moving on Monday. Yeah. And so we were forced to sell our own products online 
And so, you know, to your point, you know, the direct consumer piece almost came out of necessity from a survival standpoint. That's kind of where we found ourselves. You know, I, I like the whole like Bruce Lee flow like water analogy where you just kind of got to find out where to, where you go and, and you got to flow that direction, path of least resistance. And for us, it was easier to educate the consumer into a product using, um, you know, high fidelity photos and, you know, using uh, videos and really showing the educational piece online versus relying on someone to tell someone to tell someone that can maybe tell a customer in a store. So for us, um, that's really what really what was important is being able to being able to articulate the value because it doesn't matter how great your products are. It matters how able you are to articulate how great your products are, because if you're not able to articulate how great your products are, it does not matter. There's a lot of great products that lose. Like, you know, uh, going back in the day, beta might have been better than VHS. I don't know. You know, they probably didn't do a very good job of marketing. I don't know. Maybe I don't know if, if the uh, the uh, I was trying to think what the little discs were before the iPads. You remember the little laser disc things? Maybe Laserdisc was a cool product. It just didn't do a very good job telling the features and benefits. I don't know. But, you know, what's what I do know is that if you have a great product, uh, if you're not able to educate the customer and, and explain to them why, and, you know, and tie features to benefits in a unique way that really speaks to them and shows them how you're going to solve their problem or make their life better, it doesn't matter how great it is. Uh, you know, most great products, just like great ideas, end up in the cemetery. Where did you find the first group of customers to buy from you online? Um, first, the first customer bought online, um, shout out to Ann Grossman. I remember her name clearly. I'd never met this lady. If I ever run into her, Ann Grossman, if you're some, by some act of serendipity, listening to my voice, reach out to me. I will send you a, a lot of awesome dog beds and a lot of awesome stuff. She, uh, found us on the website somehow. We had a, uh, we had a, a cheap, crappy Joomla website built that we got built, like I said, online and, and, uh, and, you know, we started using uh, Google AdWords to drive money, right? So, so to drive traffic to get money. And that was really kind of what we cut our teeth is I didn't know anything about AdWords. And I know I couldn't afford anybody to, to pay for it, to, to, to run the AdWords campaigns. And so I just started diving in. You know, at this day and age, we have access to all the world's information right at our fingertips. And it's amazing to me that some people use it to upgrade their skills and other people just watch Netflix all day. And it's just a matter of really where you want to spend your time. And for me... Um, I just learned how to drive traffic and I iterated and every day we got a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And, uh, pretty soon, uh, we, you know, we had a, a business on our hands. Uh, but Google AdWords is how we first got those, uh, that initial traffic done. You know, one thing that I would suggest to anyone else just based on my experience was that I was really thinking short term. I wasn't thinking long term. So there was some things from the business standpoint that we didn't do in the early days. I really, really wish we would have. One, one example would have been investing more time in blogging and SEO, right? So at the time, if we would have invested in blogging and SEO, um, we would have been a lot more, we'd be a lot further down the path from an organic search result than we are. But it's hard to talk about you know, writing blogs when you're selling to survive, yeah. right? It's easy to say, okay, if I need to sell something today in order to pay the bills tomorrow, uh, writing a blog is probably not the best use of my time. Now, tweaking your Google AdWords account and, and spending some money to acquire traffic makes more sense. But, you know, one thing that entrepreneurs have to do is we have to take a we have to take the short and the long approach at the same time. We have to look at, you know, what what do we need short term and how, how can we map that to our long term plan? Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up kind of the make a tweak, see if it's better, make a tweak, see if it's better, because it, it fits into sort of the continuous improvement thing that we talk about a lot on the, on the podcast. 
I, like all of your marketing online. I mean, is that how you treated it? You know, like make these tweaks and AdWords today, see what kind of sales we get tomorrow. Okay, that worked. Do it again, do it again, do it again. Yeah, absolutely. It's Kaizen principles all the way. Continuous improvement, reiterate, reiterate, reiterate. It's uh, A-B testing is super important when it comes to online, right? So you need to make sure that, you know, if you, it's A-B testing is not just, is this, do people click this button if it's red or if it's purple? It, that's There's a lot more to it than that, right? So understanding what your traffic is and understanding what the intent of that customer is when they come to your site is super important because oftentimes we hit them with, uh, by we, I mean uh, the general the general marketer public here. We, we hit them with messages that don't resonate with them, that don't matter to them. So if you are searching for a blue pen and you come to my website and I say, hey, buy a bottle of water, uh, it's not going to really, it's not going to do anything. But you'd be surprised how many people spend money and they don't actually marry the intent of the customer with what your actual offer is. You know, it's just like, hey, you're here now. Well, guess what? I know you're looking for a blue pen. We don't have any of those, but we've got this great water. You know what? It doesn't matter how great your water is. That's bullshit marketing. You need to really think about what the customer has. And you know, what I used to do was I used to think about, okay, so you're looking for this pen. Well, let me show you why you need this amazing better pen that costs more money, right? And I would educate them into this higher, higher dollar pen, which I don't have. Unfortunately, I wasn't preparing for my pen analogy here. So I only have this one pen. Um, but that being said, what I've kind of evolved over time is uh, my thought process as far as how buying behavior works is nowadays, if you're looking for a blue pen, I say here. Yeah. Here's a blue pen. Now I have this other pen too, which is an upsell offer. But if this is what you're looking for, I have it. Right. And so by being able to give the customer what they, what they, what they need and what they want, it's super important. You know, and people are right when they say that people buy what they want, not what they need. I used to think you take what they need and take what they want and make it a need, but you have people buy what they want. So, so find out what those people want and how to solve their problem and sell the pain pill, not the vitamin. That's right. My <laughs> it's the secret to every successful business. Find out what people want and then sell it to them. Yes. It's a uh, groundbreaking business advice going on here today uh, <laughs> at the Art of Manufacturing's uh, podcast here. Find out what they want and then give it to them. You, you know, Trevor and I have known each other for four years, right? I've I've seen uh, Buddy Brands kind of grow and evolve since then from a little bit of firefighting to now I kid Trevor all the time that he's in an RV somewhere in the country. Um, not today. No, you're clearly in your office today. How, do you, how, do you, how did you get there? Like, how did you go from, you know, firefighting, selling to survive, bringing manufacturing in-house all the way to today? your business, you, you have a team in place that's running it, right? Um, and now you can do other initiatives. Like, how, t- tell me what that journey was. Yeah, absolutely. So, it, yeah, it's, it's, really e- it's really easy to get stuck in working in your business forever. And, you know, the old adage about working in your business, working on your business is absolutely true. If you're really wanting to grow your business, you need to remove yourself from your business and work on your business instead of in the business. If you're just an operator day to day, you don't have the time to, to strategize. You don't have the time to really focus on the stuff that moves the needle. And for me, um, you know, I, I learned this lesson the hard way where I didn't invest in my people early on and you get what you pay for. And uh, only in recent years have we uh, really started investing in higher end people and getting, you know, executives with experience in here. And now that we have that, you know, it's, it's amazing when you are in a room and you're not, you're not the only one that can solve the problem. And you know, all of a sudden, 
there's other people that can solve the problem too. And you, so you, you don't even have to be in that room at a certain point. You know, you need to make sure that they're, they're on the right course. But I look to hire people that um, I don't necessarily have to hold their hand. And I, I don't like to manage people in particular. I don't like to micromanage people. I like to find people that are self-sufficient, that I can point at a hill and say, we have to take this hill. And they don't even ask me why. They just know that um, what the mission is. And we're going to find a way uh, together to take the hill. And and, and, and that's ultimately what I do. The loosely coupled, loosely coupled, highly aligned scenario where we're not all dependent on each other to get our own jobs done. We're dependent on ourselves. And so once I've done that and I've empowered the people, uh, it's freed me up to, to work on other projects uh, like, like spending more time with my family. You know, um, you know we, did, we did the whole buy an RV during COVID and travel the United States, which is fantastic. Um, but I was also working a lot of that time as well. It's really hard to work on the road. Uh, it's not as easy as it sounds when you're sitting on a beach, but, um, you know, it does free me up to work on other, on other things that I'm passionate about, like my marketing agency, which is where I spend most of my time today. Yeah. Was there some kind of inflection point, like over the last four or five years where you said, I I gotta, I gotta quit operating and step out of that role? Like did something happen or was that just sort of the natural evolution of things? Um, you know, when you talk about fighting fires earlier, you know, oftentimes as entrepreneurs, we're always fighting fires. It's always surrounded by fires. And even at, you, you know, and, and look, as you level up, you're going to have new, new fires that present themselves. Right. And there's always some fire to put out, but when you can find people that not only know how to put up the fires, but they also know how to be proactive and say, okay, well, I'm not going to set this next to that because that could cause a fire. That's when you start really getting some momentum and you stop self, you kind of stop sabotaging your own business by trying to manage everything. So for me, it wasn't necessarily a certain inflection point. Um, it was more so like, uh, uh, we just kind of naturally, we've, we made every mistake out there and we, and we learned from them. We reiterated, we continuously improved and we finally got to a place to where, uh, when I finally brought in some people that could solve problems on their own, I wasn't, I just wasn't necessary anymore. Like I'm still necessary. Uh, and I work on the sales and marketing side, but I work within my gifts. And so for me, that's like the most important thing that you can do as a business owner, whether you're a manufacturer or a marketer, whatever you do. People are happier and they're better and more fulfilled and, and they're better at their job when they're working within their gifts. They're doing, you know, what they're supposed to do. And for years I've been, you know, uh, working outside of my gifts. You know, should, can I can I figure out some of the supply chain management, and some of the deeper stuff that goes into the manufacturing piece? Yeah, I can kind of figure it out. If you give me enough time, I'm a logical person. I can apply some some basic principles to it. But it wasn't what I love to do, and it's not, and it's not within my gifts per se. And so now that I work on the sales and marketing side, I'm really within my gifts, and uh, I let other people that uh, do working within their gifts do what they do. So did you kind of did you bring in outside folks, or did you develop internal people, or did you do both? So uh, both, but primarily the like the biggest hire we've made recently is I hired a new COO, which we brought in externally, and uh, he's been transformative for us. You know, the, he came with a lot of experience, and he was the kind of person that I never thought that we would we could afford to hire. Right? So how can you afford to pull the trigger on someone like this? And now, now I, I genuinely feel like we could we could not afford to to hire this person. Um, it, there's a lot more 
for anybody who's out there, it's bootstrapping a company or just scaling and challenged, you know, there's a lot of things you can do besides compensation. There's a lot of other strategies you can take. There's a lot of other levers you can pull. You can do shadow stock. You can do, you know, earnouts. You can do percentage of sales. You can do all sorts of different things in order to attract the right talent to your business. You just have to not be afraid to do it, I think. So how did you go about finding the right person? Yeah, so for me at this point, I've been through, you know, I've hired so many agencies out there and hired so many different people for different jobs, freelancers. Uh, and I've been burned by so many different people that I, that I don't actually hire anybody without a certain sort of recommendation or some sort of base. I need to know somebody who knows you, who you've worked with. Um, and, you know, and I can say that, by the way, because, you know, I own a marketing agency now and most marketing agencies will overpromise, underdeliver. You know, if you hire 100 of them, 98 of them, 95 of them won't do what they say they're going to do. It's a very rare thing to find a marketing agency that does what they say they're going to do. So it's the same principle when it comes to hiring people now for me, especially on, a, on, a, on an executive level, is that I look for people that people know that come with recommendations. And, you know, the person I hired came from the pipeline program that we're both in. Somebody I knew, had, they had worked with them. Uh, in the Pipeline Entrepreneurs Program. And so they came highly recommended. So it was a known quantity. I didn't have to worry, is this person a person of integrity? Is this person somebody who can get the job done? Is this somebody that can just talk really well? You know, all of that stuff was answered because I, I hired somebody that I knew based on a recommendation. So to answer your question, that's how I do it. I, I, I only hire off of referrals or recommendations, period. Yeah, but how do you know what you need? Like the traits of the person? I mean, is it just that you've hired... So many different people that you knew what you didn't want so that when you found somebody, you, it was pretty clear or. I think that's probably accurate. But to, you know, really, the, the thing is, is I've always believed in hiring for hiring for fit, and hiring for culture and not necessarily hiring skills and experience. And that's how we've built the business. But that's also uh, and I think that that is the way to build the business is that you build people that you can work together with on a regular basis that culturally are fit. And you guys are all aligned. But as you get to uh, more advanced levels in the game, you're going to want to bring in somebody that has that experience. And and so uh, I've tended to hire on culture and train skills in this particular when it comes to hiring an executive. Um, you want to bring somebody that brings some skills to the table, right? And at a certain point, you've got to level up with with who you're bringing in and, and level up the company. So you need to bring in somebody. And maybe, you know, maybe like I'm looking at hiring a new salesperson right now. I don't want to just hire some salesperson and train him to go. I want somebody that has a network, with Rolodex, and somebody who has some experience. There's value in that. And there's also value in somebody that doesn't have all that, right? You know, having somebody that's fresh and, and their mind you can mold however you want and give them your own, you know, style. There, there's positives and negatives of both. It just kind of depends. For me, um, it's it just I knew that in this particular position, I need somebody who was more experienced than me at running the business, and that's what I did. And now they're running the business. So how do you stay? So now, now that you're kind of out of the day to day on the manufacturing side, on the buddy brand side of things, and focusing on the, you know, what you're really great at, which is sales and marketing, how do you stay connected with the other business? How do you know what's going on? Uh, you know, making. Yeah, it's the whole trust but verify thing. You still got to be involved. You still have to, you know, I still have my piece that I, I deliver. Um, you know, we are pretty tight from, you know, even though we're loosely coupled and highly aligned, you know, we use uh, we use project management software so we know where everybody's working and we know if anybody needs support or if they're stuck or if they've got a challenge. And then we do alignment meetings. We have two alignment meetings a week. We have one towards the beginning of the week, one towards the end of the week. They're different topics. One of them is about what are we going to accomplish, what do we need to do, 
The other one is kind of a more drawn out staff meeting. What challenges are we facing now and what products are we coming out with and that kind of thing. And then in between, I, I run a, my marketing team uh, in between all that. And so we kind of are siloed ourselves. Uh, so you have operations, marketing and management, and then we all kind of align throughout the week. So how do I go like going back to the marketing thing and, and thinking about, you know, what's really unique to you is that you're a marketing and salesperson who happened to start a manufacturing company because of buddy, right? You wanted a better bed for him. And these things kind of grew up beside each other. Right. And now you own a marketing agency. And the thing that I've seen a lot throughout my career is manufacturers struggle to really reach their customers directly, like to have some kind of connection to them, to upsell them, to find new customers, like in, in the digital world. What, you know, since you've done this for years now, like, what would you tell those people? Like, where do they start? Do I need to hire like a 20 something social media person to go post shit on Instagram or like? Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe that's a great route. I think the first step would be understanding who your customer is. And I know a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, well, I know my customer, but do you know your customer? That would be the first step. Know your customer. Know who they are. Know what they like. Know what shows they like. Know, do they have kids? Are they married? Uh, what, what type of sports are they into? You know, how much money do they spend? Uh, by the way, a lot of this information, including how much money they spend, a lot of this stuff is out there. You can find that out. But once you understand who your customer is, and it's not always one customer, it's usually two or three different avatars. Once you figure this out, who they are, then you know, where are they? How do you find them? Where do they hang out? Right. And so if your customers are all hanging out on Instagram, then maybe, yeah, a 20 year old something, uh, uh, a 20 something year old Instagram person might be worth the investment. But for most manufacturers, I, I think they're going to probably find that even though everybody they probably talk to does hang out on Instagram, that might not be where their core you know, audience hangs out. Maybe it's LinkedIn. Maybe it's not on social media at all. Maybe it's at this particular conferences. Well, whatever it is, you need first step is to find and understand your customer. And then once you kind of understand the customer, then you kind of think about what is their pain points and be empathetic and put yourself in their shoes. Once you've figured out what their pain points are, now you can talk about, uh, you know, psychographics and being able to match the messaging with filling those pain points. And you can even, you know, you can even talk to them and find out really what words do they use to describe the problems that they have. And then you can reverse engineer those words to, to solve the problems in a unique way. And it's not just talking about features. I think oftentimes marketers and salespeople, they spend way too much time talking about features. They don't talk about benefits. And more importantly, the best, best salespeople are able to tie the feature to the benefit in a unique way for the person that's actually listening, the customer that they have on, on the line. So that all starts with knowing your customer and determining what their needs are before you can start recommending solutions and products. But once you have determined what their needs are, you instantly, since you know your customer so well, you're able to create a story that ties the features and the benefits that benefits that person in a unique way and solves their pain, their pain point, turns on their hot button and really increases the perceived value of the service offering or the product that you're making. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't take the time to really know who the customer is that they're selling to. And so they waste a lot of time with a lot of efforts and focusing on places that they're not there. Um, or they just expect things to work on their own. You know, you can build an amazing website, uh, but unless you're driving traffic and the right type of traffic to it, 
then it's not going to do anything. Or you can drive amazing traffic, but unless your website is optimized and ready to solve those pain points and talk about features to benefits in unique ways, you're just driving a lot of wasted traffic to an empty store. Yeah, but the, 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 that makes a lot of sense. And I completely agree with you. So I'm a, let's play this out. I'm a manufacturing company. I've been around for 50 years, right? I'm, I'm second generation taking over. So yeah, I want to grow it and I want to use, you know, digital marketing to make it happen. I know my customers. I've met every one of them. I've been around them since I was five years old, right? So what is the difference between me knowing all of them and knowing these avatars, pro- profiles, whatever it is that you're talking about? Yeah, it's not just when I say know your customers, it's just not knowing them, you know, not knowing Fred and Sally down at the plant or down at this. It's about really knowing what makes them tick, right? It's about knowing what do they buy? Where do they shop? What do they look for? What problems are they having? What words, this is what I was saying a minute ago, what words do they use to describe those problems, right? And once you really can dive in and peel back the layers, you can really use highly targeted messaging that resonates and speaks directly to them. And there you're solving problems. And, you, and if you're able to do this, you're able to do it at scale using the you know, different softwares and using the right types of messaging. You're able to scale that one-on-one relationship on a massive level. Uh, unfortunately, people these days, they, they try to hang their hat on the fact that they've been in business so long or they're, they're made in the USA or their service is what's, what's the differentiator. You know, oftentimes those things are just, I hate to say it, they're just, they're just weak value props. You know, all of our products are made in the USA, but people don't really care. You know, they, they say they do. Don't, don't, if I pulled the audience, they would tell me that they care that these products are made in the USA. But at the end of the day, buying behavior shows that it doesn't. So you need to understand that what they say and what you think and assume doesn't necessarily translate to what they actually buy. And so understanding all of these concepts and understanding the nuances of where your customer, what your customer is, what they, what, what they think about, what keeps them up at night, this is really what is necessary in order to take your messaging and your marketing to the next level and ultimately uh, you know, convert them from a prospect to a customer. So, so the fact that I know all my customers you know, because I've known them since I was five. I, I, I talk to all of them, right? And then you can group them together. And because they'll, they'll say similar things, and there'll be a little bit of overlap. You know, like one, one person will say, you know, we're capacity constrained. I need, you know, whatever, whatever happens to be. And so then you match up the messaging with where you can reach those people. So I might be doing ads on Google when they search. I might be doing display ads like on the Wall Street Journal or, some other site with the the words that they're using and then go to, they go to my site and see something similar that describes their problem and connects the benefits and features and everything to my product. And then they buy it. Is that the gist of it? I mean, I think I said it a lot more eloquently, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it seems easy. Yeah. I mean, look, understanding the customer is half the battle. So when you're doing, you're figuring out these personas of these avatars, what's the sample size? Like how many people should you talk to? Um, you know, I don't know if there's a one size fits all answer to that. Um, I would say, you know, understanding it, cause you know, in some markets you might be, you might make 10 large sales a year and in some others you might make thousands of sales a day. So it just kind of depends on, on what, what fits, you know, what fits your market. Um, I would say enough, you're talking to enough people, you're making enough sales where you, you're starting to see some commonality through all of them. Right. So the way that people talk about, now, if you say, hey, why would you, why would you like, what are you looking to solve? What's your pain point? Or why would you not buy this product even? And if you start to, once you start to see that commonality of language, you start to pick out that people are saying, 
X because of Y on a regular basis, I think then you have some validation. I don't know the scientific method on when enough is enough. I think it just depends. But I would say it's when you start to when you start to be able to extrapolate actual data points out of it. It's not just a convoluted mess. Yeah. When you hear. OK. So when you hear the same thing over and over again, then. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot. Of- so where do you go from here? Well, my son's playing soccer tonight, so I'll probably, uh, I, <laughs> you know, if Not you wouldn't today. expect me to be a little sarcastic with you, of all people, um, you picked the wrong guest. But, um, you know, for me personally, you know, I'm really interested in, in this e-commerce, you know, this e-commerce technology. Uh, 2020 was a really crazy year for everyone. It accelerated the e-commerce business or the e-commerce industry. And I think everybody now that was kind of sleeping a little bit on e-commerce has woken up and realized, wow, we need a strategy. You know, we have a technology partnership with a German company where we create 3D models for e-commerce. You can take any item, uh, like this blue pen I still have, which I still have not sold you yet, but by the end of this, I'm going to have you then loan me some money. Um, people want to buy this pen. Uh, they they can look at it online uh, from multiple different dimensions, multiple different access, and even throw it in augmented reality, and that technology is available right now uh, for the masses. In fact, uh, Shopify has this as a native feature. So even though a lot of manufacturers might have some hand model uh, stuff going on, uh, you know, where, where, you know, a human is actually modeling the product by hand or, or maybe even in the CAD phase, you know, you're developing it. Well, what's important in e-commerce is that you have a accurate representation of the product because we're in the authenticity business. We're selling them something. And when it shows up at the door, it better be what we sold them or you're going to get it returned back to you. So it's important that you have a high fidelity representation of the product. So for us, we have this really cool scan technology. There's nothing like it in the United States. It takes your product, scans it, and creates a 3D model. Uh, and, it's, and it's almost without human touch at all. And so versus like being 90, 99% done by human beings, it's 99% done by machines, through machine learning. And we come in the end and uh, just quality assurance, make sure it's finishing. It's, a, it's affordable. It's scalable. And it will increase your conversion rates online by somewhere between 30 to 50 percent or reduce returns by giving customers more access. So, you know, I'm super excited about e-commerce and where we're going, that technology in particular. And then, you know, we work with brands through my agency, Compel Commerce, where we uh, create you know awesome user experiences and create product videos and create 3D assets for them to use that really help delight and wow their, their customers and really help bridge the gap between shopping online and shopping in the store. Yeah, that's cool. The 3D models thing, I think, is re- is really cool. Um, because if if you can't, I, it was funny, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday, about com- buying a car completely online. And I would at this point, because they have those kinds of things inside, outside, underneath, on the top, every different way you want to look at it. Um, you know, but it's interesting in the industrial world, like with sensors and stuff like that, they don't. Yeah, they have CAD drawings. You can drop them in your CAD software, but you don't really know what it looks like until you buy it. Um, and there's only a couple of pictures online. So I, I see that as a huge benefit, like across the board. Well, there's a million use cases, even for manufacturers. Let's just say there's manufacturers listening to sell big, heavy machinery. You know, being able to deploy a authentic, a photorealistic version of that product onto your floor and seeing if it's going to fit within the space that you want it to fit in, you know, if it, what it's going to look like, you know, these types of things are valuable and yeah. beneficial. It's not just for people who want to try on shoes virtually or somebody who wants to see if that outfit's going to look good. There's a million different use cases. And so 3D models just getting started. If you wanted to take it a step further and take that exact same 3D model that we made for that manufacturer to put on their floor, 
you put it into virtual reality and actually create a training program around that for your new hires to get experience with that machinery, it's absolutely possible. I know it sounds like the future, but it's now. It's just a matter of uh, getting adoption and getting people to recognize it. And the reason why we spend most of our time in e-commerce is because it's really easy. Hey, you have a 3D model on your website. It's going to convert more sales. You're going to make more money. So it's really easy for you to see that. I think the next step is getting you know manufacturers and you know to understand the value of, of, of being able to incorporate this in some of their use cases yeah. as well. Yeah, I agree. I think it'd be pretty cool for that, especially for parts. Um, just because it's they're all so similar, and it's like, is this really the right one? I can't tell from the drawing. I can't tell from that shitty picture you have on your website. Um, and, but having a three D model, especially with the way you guys can create them, I think it would be a game changer for most folks. Well, and being able to deploy that 3D model right there in front of you on your desk while you're talking with someone. So imagine that, you know, we do also, we're working on like virtual uh, virtual trade show technology. So me and you are engaged in a sales process and you're trying to show me this damn blue pen that no one's bought yet. You can actually show it to me and I can actually populate it on my phone right in front of me and I can look at all the different angles and I can see exactly what you're talking about it as you're selling it to me. And that's just one of a million use cases. We're only limited by our imagination. And so... You know, the, the, the world we live in today is uh, is a pretty interesting place, um, and I'm pretty optimistic to yeah. be a part of it. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, cool. So we're kind of to the end of our hour, and there's a few things that I always like to ask everybody that's on the, on the podcast. Uh, one of them is, what's something that you learned as a kid that stuck with you today? What's something I learned as a kid that stuck with me today? Damn, that's a... Uh... I've never been asked something like that. That's a great douche. I didn't realize Katie Couric here on the other line had such depth in the questioning. Um, you know, I would say, you know, for me, resilience is, is really what I learned as a child. You know, it wasn't, I didn't have like a, a super rough upbringing and, and, you know, and I was very fortunate to have uh, a pretty good childhood. But what I had was I had two older brothers and they used to beat, beat me on a pretty regular basis and, um, they, they made me really tough and resilient and they made me who the person I was today. So even though I could say that they picked on me a lot and they bullied me and taped me to the, uh, laundry basket and threw me down the stairs, they also made me who I was today and I wouldn't change that. So, um, one thing I learned is, uh, yeah, is, uh, is how to be resilient and how to keep pushing forward even when somebody bigger and stronger than you might be pushing you down. And the other thing is, is, is uh, don't trust Brad when he says he wants you to, to sit in this uh, laundry basket. <laughs> yeah. Be skeptical. <laughs> right. Yeah. Being kicked in the teeth is a really either figuratively or literally is a good thing for an entrepreneur. Like it makes you a better entrepreneur, I think. Absolutely. And you know, it, 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 it's, if you and if you don't want to get kicked in the teeth, do something else. Cause it, it's, yeah. it, there's a lot of that that comes, there's a lot of eating glass and a lot of sacrifice, you know, um, you know, any entrepreneur needs to know it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to be a, probably three times longer than you think it's going to take. It's going to be five times more expensive and, uh, it's going to be a lot of pain. So if you're, if you're open to that, um, then sign on up, uh, but just know that it's in the brochure. So when shit happens, don't cry about it. Just got to keep going. <laughs> and it's not in the fine print either. It should be the cover of the brochure. Yeah. Well, this is what we signed up for, right? So yeah. you have to figure out how to eat glass and smile. <laughs>